everyone, and welcome to the Metazoa podcast, a show about nature by those who love nature. I'm your host, Phoebe Carnes. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Dunford. And I cannot believe that we are actually here. I know. It's been, this has been a discussion library. in the making for really about like three or four years, but yeah. not a serious one until about two months ago. At midnight when I messaged you. Uh, at midnight. Yes. Like, hey, I'm going to start a podcast. Do you want to be part of it? I said, hell yeah. <laughs> and so here we are with the Metazoa podcast, which is super exciting for the both of us. So... Most of you probably maybe know who we are, but if you do not somehow, um, we figure we would do just a quick little introduction of ourselves. So I'm Phoebe, as I said earlier, um, born and raised in the Great Smoky Mountains of North Carolina, absolutely gorgeous, surrounded by nature and wildlife and all of those fun things. Went down with the salamanders when I was a kid, you know, all the, all the things that young nature lovers do. Um, and I am currently attending the University of North Carolina at Asheville to get my biology degree. This is what I love to do. And so I am super excited to have this opportunity to share all that with you guys. <laughs> so I'm Jacob, as I mentioned. I am a, a biology-flavored comp sci major at the U University of North Carolina at Charlotte uh, with a concentration in software engineering. Um, I, like Phoebe said, I was born and raised here in the Western North Carolina in the, with the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in our backyard. And nine times out of 10, when Phoebe's down there in the mud with the salamanders, I'm holding the flashlight. And I've always said that in another life, I would have been a park ranger. So here we are. Here we are. And this is a good thing to know. We've also both worked with Great Smoky Mountains National Park too. So uh, even though Jacob is not a biology major, this is still something that is very much interesting to the both of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's our little introductions, and we're still kind of trying to figure out how this podcast is going to work. <laughs> structured, that kind of thing. How it's going to be structured. Um, but I figured it would be really fun because there's always a bunch of wildlife news that's going on all across the U.S. and the globe that we would have this fun little news segment. So we have quite a few really awesome news stories to share today. Um, Jacob has not really looked at these, so this is going to be a lot of... I know the title. That's yeah, it. you know the titles of them, and that that's, that's about it. So we're going to start off with this one that I thought was just really fun <laughs> and really fascinating. Um, do you consider yourself a napper, Jacob? Do you a take napper? Naps? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes I'm a napper. Yeah, like how, how long would you think your nap is, like just on average? Anywhere from 10 minutes to four hours. That's that's a long range. It's a, it's, it's a range, it's a range. Yeah. Anything after 30 minutes though, and I, it, groggy, I don't want to get back up. No, that's true, a nap has to be pretty long for, for most people and most creatures, I would guess. Um, but what if I told you that penguins don't work like that? How do how do penguins work, Phoebe? Yeah, it's um so they take a lot of naps. Okay. How many naps? I'm sure that's the question you're wondering. Try ten thousand. Ten thousand naps. Every single every day. day. How long are are each naps for to be <laughs> ten thousand? 
Yeah. Well, there was this really interesting study that actually came out um, where these researchers went to a penguin colony on King George Island in Antarctica. And these are chin strap penguins. So they're not like the huge emperor penguins you've heard about. They're these just little cute. Just little, little dudes, little yeah, guys. Yeah, cute dudes and dudettes out there. <laughs> and they found that these penguins take these power naps that are about four seconds. Four, four, four second power naps. Four second power naps all throughout the day. It doesn't matter if the penguin is like actually laying down, they can be standing up and do this little power nap. I mean, they don't care. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is crazy. And by doing this, they actually can get about 11 hours of sleep a day. In four second intervals. That's more sleep than I get at night. That's more sleep than I get. (laughs) (laughs) And they're just doing this all throughout the day. And so researchers, you know, they call these micro sleeps, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and the, the way that they actually discovered this is kind of kind of interesting. They use this technology called an electroencephalogram. Um, I, I'm sorry, say that again. Electroencephalogram. Electroencephalogram. Yeah, which is kind of a way for them to monitor brain activity is essentially. Gotcha. Yeah. EEG for short. EEG. But, but I wanted to say that name. Because yeah, uh-huh, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, and they also took a bunch of video just trying to see like, when did the penguins close their eyes and, you know, stuff like that. And that's how they were able to come up with these numbers. Um, they did find that penguins slept a little bit longer around noon, like 10 seconds. Oh, 10 seconds. Yeah. Ooh, they're really slacking. Yeah, they're really slacking. But that's, you know, heat of the day in Antarctica, which is not <laughs> that hot. Um, that's when probably there's not going to be a lot of predators about trying to get them. And in fact, that's what they discovered, or at least that's what they believe that these micro sleeps are for, is for predator evasion. Right. Because imagine when animals are sleeping, that's pretty much the most vulnerable you can be as, as an animal is when you're asleep. Um, so this <laughs> So the answer is don't. Yeah, so the answer is really just don't sleep, just blink. Um, four second <laughs> intervals. Four second intervals. Yeah. Up to 10 seconds. That's up to 10 seconds. That though. is crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And in fact, the lead researcher of this study, his name is Paul Antoine Laborial. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right. I hope I am. But he's from the Lyon Neuroscience Research Center in France, um, which they do all kinds of work in Antarctica. And he actually stated, quote, sleep is much more complex in its diversity than what we read about in most textbooks. Certainly so in the case of these penguins. Um, And it's actually kind of weird because this is not necessarily new information in the sense that scientists back in the 80s were also doing some um, different experiments on penguin sleep and things like that. But what they did is they actually brought the penguin into a different environment. And what they noted, um, which what scientists now notice actually microsleeps, they just thought it was drowsiness. So they just thought these were really lazy. When you say different environment, do you mean like radically different than what they're used to, or like? Well, they, you... yeah, they like brought them into like a captive environment. Okay. Um, I don't know if that means like a zoo or just somewhere in the in the lab or whatever, but just not in a wild setting, which I'm, I'm assuming would probably change their sleep patterns and circadian rhythms. <laughs> if I had a bright uh, fluorescent white light shining on me at all times. I think that would change my yeah. mind. Sleep schedule, maybe. Um, really a little maybe bit. Maybe a little bit, yeah. Um, but, you know, penguins are not the only animals that have these really strange sleep schedules. Um, elephants 
also have steak micronaps? Yeah, not four second long micronaps, um, but they um, are known to sleep for about two hours a day standing up. They don't lay down, of course, um, and they can go up to 48 hours without sleeping. 48 hours yeah. on two hours of sleep. On two hours of sleep, yeah, every standing. two days. Standing up. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. And here's another one from actually a kind of closely related species. It's another uh, species of bird, but um, giant frigate birds. Frigate? Yeah. Um, or like, okay. Yeah, I think okay. that's how you say it. Um, I'm terrible with pronunciations, as you know. But these are giant, they almost look like big albatrosses, and they're kind of black in color and have these really bright red throat pouches that they use for uh, like mating dances and stuff. They're wild looking birds. Um, and so they spend a lot of time flying over the ocean to find food and to migrate and do that sort of thing. So they may only sleep for an hour a day when they're doing that. And when they find a place to kind of nest and rest, they take uh, these like stock up sleeps where they might sleep for 13 hours straight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. How long could they go without sleeping? Yeah, like um, a couple days, I think. On 13 hours? Get hopped up? Yeah, they kind of take that 13 hour nap and they're like, okay, I'm good. I'm good, I'm good for a couple I'm days. Good. Yeah. I wish I could take 13 hours of sleep like every single day. But Every single day? There's not time in the day for, for 13 hours of sleep. There's really not. No. Especially with how late I stay up at night. It's true. There are some weird sleeping, sleeping habits with animals. Like I know how a lot of marine animals mm -hmm. will only shut off like half their brain at a time. Yeah, like dolphins. dolphins yeah. yeah, dolphins will do that. I mean, I guess it's hard to sleep in water in the, in the ocean so, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're a mammal who has to breathe air and you can't you're not like a fish um yes but like sleep man sleep is weird sleep is weird sleep is weird yeah. that's the moral of that story so that was a really cool research thing that i was able to find more exciting news um we have a new species of dwarf gecko of dwarf gecko dwarf gecko tiny Tiny like, little talking palm sized, finger size. Oh, like, oh. like finger size. Okay, okay. Itty bitty little geckos. And so um, they call it the Sundra dwarf gecko. Sundra? Sundra. Sundra, yeah. okay. Um, and it's a new species, a very colorful gecko. I actually have some images for it here. For those listening just on audio, these will probably be posted on our social media accounts if I can remember um, to do that. But they are an absolutely gorgeous little species. <gasps> they're tiny. Yeah, they're And so the males are super dark in color, and they have kind of this like yellow to orange stripe. Um, and then the females are like a more kind of orangey brown. Yeah. But they have all kinds of black. Is that a different kind of stripe too? Is that because it's two different species, or is that a sexual? No, yeah. Dimorphism? So this is sexual dimorphism. So you have the males, which are super dark, with that really bright yellow stripe, and also a bunch of like white and kind of blue spots, and then the females. And they're kind of like <laughs> they're in inverted color. Yeah, literally. So yeah, super beautiful species. And actually, where they were found is kind of weird um, because they were found at this very expensive resort it's into the wild resort in tamil nadu which is the southernmost state of india um, so just to put this into perspective this is about 1300 miles from new delhi um, so it's like way south southern india and these geckos some some eagle-eyed people spotted these little geckos on the rocks and said that looks a little weird we've never seen geckos like that before and sure enough 
They are a new species, reportedly active during the day, which is also a little strange for geckos, um, and found on rocks and buildings and everything else around the resort. Um, they're, they're only about three inches in length. So yeah, about the size of like a finger yeah. or like just the palm of your hand, really tiny little geckos. And their name, Sundra, actually comes from the Sanskrit word for beautiful, which makes sense based on the images that I am, I am showing you right now. Yeah, they're absolutely a gorgeous species of gecko. Dwarf geckos, anyway, are super cool. They are. Geckos are really cool. Geckos alone are super, super cool animals. But yeah, Sundra dwarf gecko. Sundra dwarf geckos. In a resort. Well, if I'm ever at a resort in Tamil Nadu, I will, uh, I'll keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for the dwarf geckos. <laughs> so that's some of our kind of more exciting news. But we do have some more unfortunate news to share. Um, have you heard about this chronic wasting disease? I have, just the zombie deer, deer virus. Zombie deer virus, yeah. So, you know, the, the U.S. and many other, it's kind of spread globally now. It can be found in... Um, do, do, we, do we know where it kind of originated? Was it in the U.S.? We do, and I'll, I'll be discussing that in just a moment. Um, but this has kind of just been spreading across the world, and it has the ability, we believe, to possibly wreak havoc on deer populations. Um, and so the United States, of course, considering that there's a lot of hunters and, you know, uh, game people and everything out there, have been really monitoring the situation and trying to enact laws to be able to prevent the spread of chronic wasting disease. And unfortunately, back in November of this year, Yellowstone National Park released a statement confirming the first reported case of chronic wasting disease within the park's boundary. Ooh, back in, so this past November. Yeah, this past November of 2023. Yeah. Um, and so the thing about chronic wasting disease is that we do not have any vaccine or cure at this point in time. And it has a 100% mortality rate for deer and elk and moose. That's pretty um, fatal. Yeah, so if you get it, that's that's it. <laughs> that is it. Um, so chronic wasting disease was first detected in the late 60s in a capital to Colorado research facility. Um, unknown if this was like the first patient zero deer or... It was this. like the, the first recorded. Yeah, like this is when we first kind of learned about this whole thing. And then by the 80s, we had found it in wild populations of deer as well. And it has since spread across the United States to 31 states um, and has even gone global with reports of uh, individuals in Norway and Sweden and Finland, Canada, and even South Korea. All the way to South Korea. Yeah. And so a lot of this is because of deer transport and like the transport right. of meat and, and actually captive individuals as well across um, all of these different countries and across the United States. And actually, it's really interesting. So, again, I, I have the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and I love the elk herd here. Jacob knows this a lot. But when the elk were reintroduced into Great Smoky Mountains National Park, they brought in two batches in 2001 and 2002, and they were supposed to have another one in 2003. Oh, I'd like actually know that. It's like another 27 or something. And they were not able to do it because that was when North Carolina enacted a law that said you cannot transport deer in or out of the state because of fear over chronic wasting disease. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, so it has definitely affected a lot of... I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's affected a lot of those kinds of efforts. Um, 
but like what is chronic wasting disease? It's actually terrifying. <laughs> um, so we believe, and again, we don't really know a whole lot about chronic wasting disease at this point, but we, we believe that it's caused by these proteins called prions. And these proteins are misfolded. So they're like misshapen, denatured proteins. Right. Um, and of course, you know, proteins don't really have DNA, but they can cause other proteins to also deform. And so that's how the disease kind of spreads throughout the animal. And they tend to congregate in the brain and the spinal column um, and the lymph nodes even of the infected animal. Um, and we think that, you know, they could be maybe found in other tissues and fluids. We're just not totally sure about that. Um, but prions are so hardy. Like they are. Yeah, yeah they are. To get rid of. <laughs> Um, I looked up how to get rid of a prion, like what's, what's the way to get rid of it. Um, and really one of the only ways that we know of to destroy a prion is to heat it up to over 900 degrees Fahrenheit for several hours. <laughs> That's a lot of energy. <laughs> Insane. These things are in and obviously they're nowhere in nature is that going to happen. No, no, not even at the thermal vents at yeah, the bottom of the hardly, ocean i mean it's it's wild okay it's insane huh. um and so the way 900 that, degrees fahrenheit for several hours yeah, not just for you a know, couple minutes hours just a few hours yeah like they can be frozen for centuries and just come back like totally fine all the bear don't care yeah yeah like tardigrades can also yeah um and so the way that chronic wasting disease is spread is through like bodily fluids. So, you know, saliva, urine, feces, blood, anything like that, which is why it can be spread so darn easily. Um, and it also can be really difficult to detect because individuals could get infected with chronic wasting disease and then be asymptomatic for a couple of years. Um, so you can't really just look at a deer unless it's already really far gone. And just know. And just know. Yeah. You have to do some pretty serious testing. Um, but some symptoms of individuals who are symptomatic include drooling, just poor body condition, skinny, ribs sticking out, listlessness, um, and then boldness around humans as well. So they'll be very brash around people. Hmm. Um, kind of uh, sounds very similar to rabies in yeah. a lot of its symptoms. Yeah, especially the boldness around people. And the drooling. Yeah, it is very similar. And so that's the other thing is it's like, kind of hard to distinguish the two just by looking at it. Um, but according to the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, quote, the majority of chronic wasting disease positive animals that are harvested appear completely normal and healthy, which is also what makes this so scary, right. that you don't know. Um, and even though I think it's important to note that chronic wasting disease has only been shown to affect cervids, so members of the deer family, um, there is a possibility that it could be infectious to humans. Um, as shown in experiments with squirrel monkeys and lab mice. So this was kind of a mad scientist experiment that they did. I think it was in Germany. Um, it was not in the United States that they did this because what they did is they took meat, like brain matter mostly, from an end of a deer that they knew had chronic wasting disease and had passed away, and they just fed it to these monkeys and these mice. And, just... and lo and behold, they got chronic wasting disease. Oh. Yeah. So... We don't know if that's because they ate brain matter specifically or what, but it is perhaps possible it can be spread to other organisms. Huh. But it looks like they have to probably eat like the center of the chronic wasting disease. Did they try 
any other parts of the deer or just the brain? I think it was mostly brain matter. I I seem to remember I read the study like a a month ago. (laughs) Well, I think they used some muscle tissue too or something. But yeah, it was mostly brain matter that they that they used. Um, so that's also kind of scary. Well, that's a little <laughs> that's concerning. A little, that's a little frightening. But kind of now that we know a chronic wasting disease is going back to Yellowstone, um, the animal was a mule deer buck, and this individual had actually been collared back in March of this year, March of 2023, near Cody, which was just outside of the park. Um, and this was just part of a population study. You know, they do this all the time. And also, just a quick side note here, Yellowstone National Park estimates that 10 to 15% of mule deer in Cody are carriers. 10 to 15%? Yeah. See, that's the thing is like they can carry it for years yeah. and be fine. But in October, which is when they found him, uh, his collar sent out a mortality beep, which is basically the collars are designed for if the animal's not moving for however many hours, that would be unusual. It sends a signal. It sends a signal to them like, hey, this animal might might have died or something might be wrong mm-hmm. so they go out and they retrieve his body near yellowstone lake um which is well within the park and they described him as being quote extremely emaciated and very very skinny mm. so that already they were kind of like okay this looks like it might be a chronic wasting disease case and tony mong a wildlife biologist in cody also was quoted as saying the following quote it had not been scavenged on did not look like it had been predated on it was pretty obvious that it had to come to chronic wasting disease. So that's the yeah. other thing that's weird. It's like the other animals must have sensed something, something was wrong. wrong. Yeah. So um, what what causes the, the to, to be emaciated? Is it that it can't absorb the nutrients or that it doesn't want nutrients? Like it, does, it loses its appetite. It doesn't want to drink, eat, or anything like that. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of both where because these uh, prions target like the brain and, and neurons and stuff, that animal is just not going to be in its right mind. So it's it's really not even probably seeking out much nutrients, even though it's literally starving. I mean, this one probably just starved to death is probably what, what eventually killed him. Um, but I mean, he just wasn't at all focused on getting food. They just, they just kind of wander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's <laughs> which is why it's called zombie deer disease because they just sort of wander with this glaze over their eyes. I've seen images of chronic wasting disease where they're like they're literally decaying. It's gnarly. Apart. Yeah. And they're still just up walking around like nothing's wrong. Well, I mean, that also makes them more vulnerable to like all kinds of other diseases too. You know, not just chronic wasting disease, but if they're not eating, their immune system is compromised. Yeah. So it's it's crazy. And of course, Yellowstone National Park is now saying that they want to increase their monitoring for chronic wasting disease because this mule deer is probably not the only one in the park. No, probably not. And that they're going to be conducting more thorough testing on suspicious carcasses that they find of, you know, deer, elk, and moose within the park. Um, And they did have a chronic wasting disease plan back in 2021. Um, Most national parks do just in case chronic wasting disease does, you know, reach their borders or whatever, but they want to update it by early so do we have any recorded cases of um, chronic wasting disease in the Smokies? Not in the Smokies yet, no. Okay. Um, at least none that I'm aware of. I don't know if North Carolina does. I don't think so. However, here's another kind of scary thing is that recently there was a, um, I think it was a white tail in Kentucky. 
in Kentucky. That's that was really chronic wasting disease. But the, the interesting thing about this one, and I, I kind of just skimmed over this article really quick, so I didn't do a super deep dive into it. But it sounds to me like this deer was maybe you know, killed somewhere else and then brought back to Kentucky hmm. from elsewhere. Brought back to Kentucky from elsewhere. Yeah. That's at least what the article I read seemed to insinuate is that it wasn't like a Kentucky deer. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, chronic wasting disease, man. Very scary. That's scary stuff. It's scary stuff. But you know, I didn't. I didn't want to end the news segment on this very terrifying note of chronic wasting disease. Um, so we have a very exciting, also a new species discovery. There was a lot of new species discovered in the past two months. Um, well, this one was kind of a rediscovery. Um, have you ever heard of D. Winton's golden mole? D. Winton's golden golden mole. Golden mole. Okay, yeah. no, no, I cannot say I have. <laughs> Most people have not. Um, so yeah, we thought this mole was extinct since like 1936, um, but it was very recently rediscovered around South Africa's sandy west coast. Um, so golden moles are, there's actually quite a few of them. There's 21 species and they're known for very good super hearing, super, super hearing. hearing and really good navigational skills. I guess when you can't see very well, yeah, that, yeah, something's got, something's got to give. Something's got to give. Um, and you know, because what's really interesting about these moles is that your average mole is digging in soil and everything else. These guys dig in sand. Sand. Sand, and because sand doesn't really hold tunnels like soil does, um, they're very hard to find because you can't really find their tunnels because right, they just collapsed. kind of collapse behind them. Yeah, um, and so this area of Africa, there's kind of a lot of diamond mining, and that's a pretty big threat to a lot of species. So there's these researchers from Endangered Wildlife Trust um, and the Rewild Program, and they wanted to know this mole was still out there because no one had seen it since 1936 and they weren't convinced since 36 okay yeah, they weren't convinced that it was extinct though because all we had was an old sample from a specimen in a museum in africa that's it we just had like a specimen in africa but like, no one had really looked for these moles since this specimen was brought in so they were like it's quite possible that it could still be out there and just no one has paid enough attention um to really go looking for them um, so they went out to see if they could map a distribution area and also just see if it was still in existence. All right. So they began their search in 2021. Um, and so what they needed is both a photo of the mole and genetic evidence. But you're probably wondering, well, how do you get genetic evidence? I was getting ready to ask that. From something you don't even know is out there. And there's this really great um, kind of recent method of genetic testing. It's called environmental DNA or eDNA for short. And so the idea of this is that as an organism moving through its environment. It's leaving stuff behind. Skin cells, fur, feces. I mean, it's going to be leaving stuff in its environment. So if you can isolate those that genetic information from the environment, you can still get genetic data. And this is kind of a very long, complicated, arduous process because not only are you going to be getting the moles data, you're going to get of all the other creatures that have ever gone through that environment. Um, and so what they did is they actually took some genetic samples from that singular specimen in the museum <laughs> um, so that they could kind of target a specific right. strand of DNA 
Neymar. Try and compare it all to yeah. that. And they, you know, there are some other golden moles out there as well. So they use some of that genetics too to kind of just see if they could find anything. They also used a dog, a border, a border collie. Her name was Jessie. Help them locate the mole. So um, she was trained basically because they didn't have any sense of the Dylan's mole specimen. It's very old. Right. Um, and so she was trained to lie down and indicate um, any other mole species in the area is basically the idea. So any mole. Here. Any mole, not any just mole. Uh, the Winton yeah. mole. Any mole. Because they also wanted to see what other species were here too. Right. Um, so that's what she was trained for. Um, and so they're searching and they're searching. And lo and behold, they collected some samples that did not match any other mole that they knew existed except that museum specimen. Hmm. Yeah. And since then, this was a couple couple months ago. And since then, they were actually able to find a live specimen and photograph it. And these guys are so goofy. Look at that. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> That's just a potato with a nose. And, like, look at his little teeth. We will also be having this on our social media for those who want to see it. But please look up the the Witten's Golden Mole. It is adorable. It's so cute. <laughs> so cute. So, so cute. But that's not all. That's not all. There's more. There's more. Because not only did they find this mole, which is like a huge deal to rediscover. That they found it at all. Yeah. Um, but they found some eDNA of four other mole species that are unknown to science. Ooh. So not extinct ones, but just ones that don't match anything. So there's the possibility of four other species of golden mole in this area that we don't even have never seen before or never documented before. Mm -hmm. Whoa, that's exciting. I mean, like, I just can't imagine like rediscovering or even just discovering one species is a huge deal. But having the possibility of, I mean, basically five species right here is insane to me. Like ones that we don't know anything about. I mean... That's so cool. That wasn't even the goal either. They were just looking for this one mole, just trying to, that they already knew existed. Yeah, at some point. Trying to rediscover this one mole and ended up finding five or records of five. Yeah. That's (laughs) super cool. That's cool. It's super cool. Um, So Esther Matthew, she's the co-author of this whole study and a senior field officer um, for the Endangered Wildlife Trust. She said, quote, a lot of conservation focuses on the more charismatic and big animals that people see often, while the rare ones that probably need more help are the ones that need more publicity, which I think is just a very powerful quote. It is a powerful quote. It's easy to get people to care about elephants and tigers, but to care about a little tiny mole, the golden mole. Yeah. Winton's golden mole. Golden mole, more specifically. That's a little bit more difficult. Um, but I will say, when the story came out, it was all over the news. People were very excited about this mole. I bet. That's, that's an awesome story. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm just, it's always exciting when like stuff like this reaches the news because um, that doesn't happen very often. And so it was cool to see that it was just everywhere, all over the news. That's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So our next segment is Animal Trivia. In this segment, I'll be quizzing our resident so-called expert, Phoebe Carnes, on all things animal. I just want to say, for the record, I have never once called myself an expert. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I have a couple presentations of yours that say otherwise. Oh, oh dear. But let's let's see. My goal here is to stump you. So let's 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 see how how much you really know. I'm I'm a little nervous. So our first question is, what is the loudest animal in the world? Oh, the loudest animal in the world. Oh dear. Um, like by decibel. Yeah. Hmm. Howler monkeys are super loud. They are loud. And have you have oh, what are I think they're called bellbirds. Those are also. I haven't heard of a bellbird actually. They are insane, like ear splitting, insanity. Well, that's um, cool and all, but yeah. neither one of those are correct. I'm definitely not buying time. Um, I I feel like it's probably some kind kind of whale, because sound has to travel pretty far in the ocean, which sound does travel faster in water anyway. But I feel like. The whales are not close to each other. They have to be able to. Sail. This is true. This is true. You're on there. You're on the right track. You're not there yet. I'm not quite there yet. Is it a kind of whale? Can I ask? No, it's not, it's not, not a, kind a whale. Of really? No. Wow. You know, your goal is to stump me, and and you might have done it, it on like the first really question. immediately. The loudest animal by decibel. Is it in the water? It's in the water. And it's not a whale. It's not a whale. Are you sure? Where, where's your, where, where'd you get your source? This is important. <laughs> We've talked about this creature before. We have talked about this creature. I just, there's not a lot of other things in the ocean that make a lot of noise. This one does. Well, apparently it does, and it's just not a whale. It's not a whale. It's not even a dolphin? Not even a dolphin. It's not a mammal at all. It's not a mammal at all. Yet it makes really loud noise. Do you want a hint? Oh, wait a second. Hold on. I think... I think I just had a light bulb moment. There's a light bulb moment. What is it? What you got? What you got? Is it? Uh, there's like two. I'm kind of thinking of. Is it like a pistol shrimp? It is the pistol shrimp. Yes. At clogging in at uh, 230 decibels, it's uh, also louder than the sound of a gunshot. Yeah. 230 decibels. So if you don't know what the pistol shrimp is, it is a little tiny prawn, uh, about the size of your hand. You'd say about the size of your hand? Yeah, some are bigger, but yeah. Yeah. Um, with one tiny claw and one really <laughs> big one. And its whole thing is that it creates a bubble in between its really big claw and then pops it. And the shockwave is so loud that it stuns its whatever it's trying to stun for defense or for it stun its prey. And in the shockwave reaches 230 decibels, as I said. Um, but the imploding bubble for split seconds also generates temperatures of 4,400 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Which is nearly as hot as the sun. Yes. <laughs> so if it's close enough, it's it's not just uh, it's not just done. It's having a it's having a potluck. Yeah, it's like roasted, boiled, yeah, boiled, <laughs> steamed. <laughs> yeah, cavitation bubbles, man. Oh my gosh. No joke. It's no joke. All this to open the shell of the crab. I, I almost stunned you there. I, yeah, I almost stunned you there. I, I did, stunned you. But but I, I prevailed. You prevailed. At the last second. <laughs> so moving on to our next question. What is the most venomous snake in the world? The inland tapin. That is correct. <laughs> I knew that, that one. Correct. <laughs> um, a single bite of the inland tapin's venom can kill at least 100 fully grown men and can kill within just 30 minutes if left untreated. Wow. Yeah, you're not having a good time if you're bitten by that either. 
you got that one pretty fast, but snakes are kind of your thing. So I, <laughs> yeah, figured, so I figured I'd give you one a shoe in. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. What is the animal with the shortest adult lifespan? The shortest adult lifespan? Ooh, there's a lot of them that have really short adult lifespans. Probably, a t- is it, it's probably an insect, if I had it to guess. Um, oh, there's like a type. It's not a mayfly. But there's there's like a no, oh right. is it a mayfly? mayfly. Oh, yeah. wow! I'm, I'm I'm a genius and I didn't <laughs> even know. It. <laughs> um, so the mayfly re- reproduces and then dies, and during that short 24 hour period of life, which most of the times it's not, not 24 that, yeah. hours, um, they most mayfly actually only live for about eight to ten hours in their adult form. Um, they have the shortest adult lifespan, but they have a very long uh, yes not you like larval larval yeah larval stage they uh, exist as a nymph in the water for about three to seven years depending on the specific species yeah Yeah, when mayflies like hatch it's it's a buffet (laughs) everything eats mayflies that's true yeah so it's no wonder they they actually have um, some experience with in the park we do uh, Bioindicators and do. Mm-hmm. yeah, they're a very important species in the park. They are, they you are. see them everywhere too. You do. It's not hard to find them. So uh, a little, a little away from home for this next one. But what do you call a group of parrots? A group of parrots? I feel like I've heard this before, and I've never used it in any conversation. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy just to be to like it's, squeeze it's that one. in. It's a new one. It's a new one. To me, anyway, it's a new one. Um, a chatter, maybe. No, that's a good good guess, but it's not a chatter. <laughs> chatter. <laughs> um, I actually, I don't. I don't have any hints. Yeah. <laughs> I could give you for this. The, the names of animal groups are insane and wild, so I really, I don't know if I know. I feel like I've heard it, and you're gonna say it, and I'm gonna be like, oh duh. But are you are you ready? Are you ready? Have I have I stumped you? I'm stumped. You're stumped. <laughs> are you here to hear? I have stumped Phoebe Carnes. On episode Ex- one. On episode one. <laughs> A group of parrots is called a pandemonium. I did know that, but obviously not well enough. Chat, I like chatter more, a though. Chatter. I'm not gonna lie. It's a chatter of parrots. I think we should change it. Good luck with that. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, but small little little fun fact is that group of porcupines is called a prickle. They I are. thought that was cute. That is really cute. I love, I think rhinos is my favorite where they're called the crash. <laughs> <laughs> the crash of rhinos. The crash of rhinos. Oh, I'm kind of a murder of crows. It's just so needlessly edgy. It is super edgy. Yeah. Animal group names. We, we can have a whole like segment. You really could. I'm going to write That's that on the idea. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Write, write that down as a yeah. note. Write it down. Write it down. Okay. So this next one is not so much as um, I'm trying to stump you. I just genuinely don't know the answer and thought it'd be more fun to ask you than to Google it. Uh-oh. So I'm trusting you over Google right that now. That is a mistake. Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> Are zebras white with black stripes <laughs> or black with white stripes? The age-old question. <laughs> well, actually, I do know the answer to this one. And they are black with white stripes. Black with white stripes. And the stripes. way you can tell is because if you look at their nose, it's black. black. So their their skin and everything is black, um, but they have white stripes. Interesting. Yeah. And, right all over. Yeah. And do you know, zebras are actually really camouflaged. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Which like seems weird, but it's called disruptive coloration. And so the idea, um, which you know this, I'm just telling our dear listeners, um, 
the idea is that if a group of zebras are together, because a zebra is very rarely going to be out by itself, um, is that the patterns, the black and white patterns, kind of make it look like one big conglomerate creature that no lion or anything is going to attack. I mean, they, it just makes them look huge. Uh-huh. All those zigzagging patterns just, yeah. like, crossing against each other. And it's also hard, like, if they're, you know, running or anything, it's hard to pick out just one from the group. So it actually, even though it doesn't look like camouflage, it's actually a very clever defense mechanism. It's kind of similar in, like, the idea of, like, you see a tiger and you see the habitats tigers come from, and you're like, there's no way. There's no way that thing is camouflaged yeah, with the orange. bright orange stripes. No, there's no way. But it's kind of similar in how the, the prey of the lion, the tiger, does not see the tiger the same way we do, because where we see orange, a lot of critters see it as green. Yeah, like deer and stuff, which is what tigers, which tigers eat anything, but deer cannot see orange, which is why also, you know, like hunting vests and stuff are orange because- Yeah, you can't see it. The deer can't see it, but we can. (laughs) That's why they're so effective. So that, yeah, I just wasn't really, I guess it is trivia, but- Yeah, that's a fun little note to end on, a little redemption. I got one more. Oh, we're not done? I got one more. Oh. What mammal? hibernates the longest the longest mm-hmm. well the longest recorded hibernation that i know of was a i think it was a little brown bat or maybe it was a big one of the brown bats and it was like 300 something days hmm. like the long, longest one ever recorded that's not it though is it i didn't think so like on average the longest hibernation yeah, just as a species wise as a species we're not including brumation in this right which is what reptiles do? No, it's, it is a mammal. It is a mammal. Okay. I think you said that in the question, and I obviously was not listening. Um, the longest mammal, I don't think it's a bear. Um, I'm going to maybe like a little mouse or squirrel. Squirrels have pretty long hibernations. This is an interesting critter. So I really, it is classified as a rodent. It's classified as a rodent. Okay, so I'm kind of on the right track. Is it like a mouse or a squirrel? Yes. Maybe. <laughs> it looks like both. both. <laughs> it looks like both. Is it a squirrel? There's like a squirrel. I don't remember what it's, the specific species is, but there's a squirrel that can hibernate for a really long time. It. I'm not seeing anything calling it a squirrel, so I'm hesitant to tell okay. you. Okay, that's fair. It might not be, but I don't know if it I... It looks a lot like a sugar glider, like a chinchilla. Oh, it kind of looks like a chinchilla. Yeah. I mean, it could be a squirrel. I don't know, though. It may not be. I don't know. I'm going to go. I mean, it's a rodent. It's a rodent. I'm going to go with, like, maybe a type of squirrel. We'll see. It is the uh, edible dormouse. Edible? Edible dormouse. That's its name. That's its name. Why? I could be pronouncing it wrong, but it's E-D-I-B-L-E. The edible dormouse? Yeah, or the gliscalus. Oh, the Gliscliss. Mm-hmm. I like that a little bit better than edible, I think. Edible <laughs> dormouse. Um, but so evidently, the edible dormouse, which I could be pronouncing that wrong as well, the D-O-R mouse, uh, but the Gliscliss is able to hibernate the longest, up to 11 months of the year when food wow. availability is low. Uh, to be able to pull off this feat, they double or even triple their body weight before hibernation. Uh, during hibernation, they are able to reduce their metabolic rate, and an- and the animal may stop breathing for periods up to an hour at a time. Wow. 11 months of the year. That is a long time. Now, I don't believe that that's something they regularly do, 
but I think uh, the whole point is during you know like extreme conditions yeah that they, they can hibernate for up to yeah I think that was what happened with the bat I was talking about it is it was like an extreme uh, condition the bat probably did not come out of that very well but <laughs> but that's all I got for you so you got one two three what's my grade four out of I think that's one two three four five so you got four out of six that's a passing grade so you got uh what is that one uh, two thirds you got two thirds okay third so 66 percent <laughs> not bad <laughs> <laughs> even though my little heart is like no you have to get an a So here we'll segue into our next recurring segment, uh, Weird, Wacky, and Wondrous. Phoebe, would you like to tell us what this segment is about? Gladly. So this is the segment where I get to actually humiliate Jacob um, (laughs) after the humiliation that I was just given, um, where I have chosen, and I will choose throughout the segment, the weirdest, wackiest, or most wondrous animal that I can think of. And then I'm going to download some pictures. We're going to show them to Jacob. And Jacob has to tell me all about that creature based solely on pictures. This is literally judging the book by its cover. I took biological uh, anthropology, so I'm sure I can. Yeah, because I definitely chose something very easy for you. So here is the first picture of this organism. Oh, I've seen that before. Um... Would you mind describing it to the listeners? (laughs) What are you seeing right now? (laughs) It looks like, have you ever eaten dragon fruit? (laughs) Okay. <laughs> it looks like if an eel was dragon fruit. If an eel was dragon fruit? Do you think that's like super far? Okay, so it's like eelish. It's wormish. It's got segments. It's long. The segments yes. are somewhat translucent, somewhat opaque. Yeah. And it's got two black dots at what appear to be the bottom, but it could just be because we're looking at it from the side. It's yeah. kind of twisted around it. We have some other images here too to get a little. Oh, okay. Yeah. This one might give you a better idea. It looks like a bunch of plastic solo cups. Kind of, yeah. With little, yeah. It's a rope of <laughs> of clear like solo gel, cups. yeah. Gel solo cups yeah. tied to each other mm-hmm. with little blank dots. Yep. Okay. This is an animal, so t- so tell me everything about this animal. It looks like trash. <laughs> it does not look like an animal. <laughs> It's in the it's in the ocean. It's in the ocean, and these pictures are in the like the the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. That one is it just dark or is that deep? It's deep. Okay, that's kind of. I was. It was so wild and out there. I was like, that's got to be like a a deep sea creature. So it looks like it's bioluminescent. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong in that, or is it or is it the camera? It could very well be the camera. So some some of these individuals have some bioluminescence. Okay. We're looking at like multiple different species, but they all kind of have the same shape, which is why we're looking at kind of different, some different ones. Interesting. And so some, some of them are found kind of toward the bottom, but some, as we saw in the previous ones, are found a little bit closer to the surface. So it almost looks like this is not one creature and that it's actually multiple creatures bounded together. Interesting. Is that a, that's a good point? Interesting? No, or the, good point. what is wrong with no, no, that's that's a good am I, am I observation. Like, is that right? <laughs> yes. Let's go. Okay. But I wouldn't say multiple creatures, just multiple individuals. Yeah, well, that's what I meant. Yeah. Like, it's the same. It's not like there's a bunch of different species. Right. Not like lichen or something. Yeah, 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 it's not like lichen. I meant like, like how uh, 
ah, uh, coral, yeah. polyps. Yeah. Where it's like mm -hmm. the same creature, yeah. same species, but multiple individuals. Yeah. So on that note, I kind of want to say that they look like they are more filter feeders than anything else. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're about the size. Yeah, they're actually not that big. Well, that, or maybe they are. Is that long? Yeah, that picture is kind of a perspective where it's like closer to the actual animal. So for reference, we're looking at a couple of different images of this. And the first one that Phoebe showed me is, looks like it's really close to the creature with a scuba diver in the back. So it makes it look like the creature is probably a lot bigger than it is. It's, they're very long. They're very long, but this makes it look like it's- Yeah, it, but it's not like in, in body size huge. It's yeah, just, yeah, they can yeah. be really long. And so now we've got what looks like it could be one individual mm -hmm. and it's about the size of this person's hand yeah got it out of the water <laughs> and it looks like little uh chia seeds it almost yeah it kind of does yeah i can see that interesting okay so i've figured out i've deduced using my expertise that this creature is uh, an individual that lives kind of bonds with other individuals mm -hmm. Looks like they just kind of float. They don't really seem like they have a whole lot of locomotion. Locomotion. Maybe I'm wrong, but they're just they're see-through. They're completely translucent. Yeah. And they look they look like a membrane, honestly. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Like very gelatinous. Yeah. I'm gonna say that they they're filter feeders. Okay. They just kinda, Interesting. They just kind of like wade or not wade drift through the water, mm -hmm. and just kind of pick things up as they go. Interesting. Is that is that everything you would like to say on this this creature? See, I touch on oh, I don't really I can't really say anything about, about behavior. Oh, I guess I kind of do. Uh, they live in the ocean. We've just discussed that they can live. You can be found in the in the upper parts or yeah. in the deeper parts. Mm -hmm. I've discussed how I think they eat. Yeah. What I think they eat. Because mm -hmm. they're not green, so I don't think they photosynthesize. No, they don't. They don't photosynthesize. I think that's all I got. Nice. Actually, I'm really impressed because I tried to choose something that you're just going to be like, what am I <laughs> what looking at? <laughs> and actually, I'm really impressed with how close you are with a lot of the things you said. So so these are called salps. S-A-L-P. Salp. Salp. Okay. Yeah. And they are gelatinous zooplankton. Oh, I was, oh, I was pretty yeah, close. You I was thinking really, that it was like plankton. Yeah, they're actually, and what's interesting about them is that they're more closely related to humans than jellyfish. Really? So they kind of look like a jellyfish with how, you know, they're clear, but they're actually um, part Bushy of, looking. yeah, they're actually tunicates. Tunicates. Yeah, which are part of uh, the phylum chordata, which includes vertebrates. Um, so just kind of imagine on the family tree, these were kind of some of the first chordates, basically. Interesting. Even okay. they don't look like it. They just look like jelly. So what do they do? Amazing question. Um, so actually, it's kind of hard to see, but those little black bundles that you can see within their gelatinous bodies have complex nervous, circulatory, and digestive systems. So this includes hearts, intestines, and even brains. So all of their organs are in that little dot. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So is this is that one individual? Or is that... We're getting there. Okay. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, so actually, you kind of mentioned how they were filter feeders, and that is correct. They feed on um, phytoplankton, but they actually can't move. So they have jet propulsion, kind of like, you know, how an octopus can move water. They kind of can do the same thing. Um, not as 
coordinated as like an octopus can, but they, they do have some jet propulsion abilities. So are they like hollow? Kind and of. And they just can like squeeze? And that's yeah, how, okay. basically. Because one of these images, it kind of looks like, they kind of look like uh, an octopus's suction cups. If you took the suction cups off of the tentacle. Yeah, sort of. And they, they look they look like they're hollow. They look like they're like um, sleeves. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's kind of the general idea and the general gist. Um, and so you were spot on with the coral comparison where each one is kind of its own individual. But what's interesting about tunicates and the salps and a bunch of other species of animals as well is that they have both sexual and asexual stages. So the stage that we're looking at now where they're all in the the bundles like that is is the asexual stage and so they're basically cloning themselves and making a bunch of different clones that's why there's multiple different segments each segment is kind of a clone of the other segment and they do this asexually so it starts with one and yeah. that it just grows into mm-hmm. more and more and more and more yeah, and more basically but they have a sexual stage too where one of these little bundles can break off of the chain and go sexual reproduce and then just make another chain. That offspring so can, can make go, another chain. Okay, so you start with one. Yes. And then it can asexually reproduce mm-hmm. into a longer chain. Mm-hmm. And then when it reaches, when it decides to... Uh, well, it could be environmental factors that cause that. Um, or if, you know, for whatever reason, something happened and one broke off or something. So what's what is the advantage of sexually reproducing versus asexually reproducing for this creature that's a good question so asexual reproduction basically they can look really big that's going to be protective for them because less things are likely to mess with them but also there's going to be in like one of the kind of arguments in organisms like this that have asexual and sexual stages is like is each one really an individual or are they all the same individual just big yeah oh yeah you know what i mean and so that's that's not really been settled yet but the idea of having multiple individuals can also be beneficial that way that genetic information has more opportunity to be passed on you know if they break apart in the chain and many of them get predated on or die or do whatever they're still kind of like backups (laughs) you know of that genetic information yeah does that kind of make sense and then, you know, the sexual reproduction, more genetic diversity, of course, and all of that sort of thing. Being able to move freely. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask, yeah. this, it looks like a smaller segment, but is that a segment or is each one of those black dots an individual? Yeah. So each little dot, that's going to be like the stomach and the intestines and stuff. So that's going to mark individuals. And gotcha. if you, that's kind of, I, that's one you of can the, kind of see, you can see that each one of those is kind of its own segment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, each one. And some so, of them have, you know, multiple layers. Um, but yeah, each one's going to be an individual. I don't know. Oh, if, I know for corals, they call them polyps. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's the same for salps and tunicates, but it's like the same idea. Is that also? Yeah. Okay. And this one's kind of cool because it kind of looks like it's spiky. Those kind of yeah. This is just another image of the of the salps. Yeah, kind of in like a circular shape. Yeah. Um, but actually, salps are known as the fastest growing animals on the planet. One oh. of them, anyway, um, because when food is plentiful, again, they're filter feeders. They feed on phytoplankton. Um, they can grow their change much quicker with larger salps, larger individual segments. 
Huh. And this is actually a process known as a salp bloom. A salp bloom. How fun. That is fun. Do we know how long, excuse me, it takes for um, one salp to like split? I don't think how long it, it takes to make another it is, It can be very, very, okay. it can be like a couple hours, a couple days, just an hour or two. Depends. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. But more food basically means more segments in their chain. Right. And salps are actually really cool because they feed on phytoplankton. Their waste is very carbon rich because phytoplankton are very carbon rich. And so their waste and the deceased individual salps, when they sink to the bottom of the ocean, all of this is very quickly taken up by twilight zone organisms, right? Right. Um, and what this essentially does is it stores the carbon at the bottom of the ocean, kind of puts it in like, think of it like a vault almost, where all that carbon is staying at the bottom of the ocean. And that actually helps regulate ocean temperature because the carbon's not just in the out air in the air or, or on the surface or something trapping in heat. It actually helps regulate ocean temperature. Interesting. So they're like little storage containers. Yeah, they kind of they kind of help the ocean out. Yeah. Huh. So that's the salt. Very cool. Thank you, Salp, for your service. <laughs> we, we appreciate Salps here on the Metazoa podcast. Well, the last little thing I want to talk about, because this was supposed to come out during Christmas, it's not Christmas. I mean, it's not Christmas Day. It's still Christmas, Christmas lasts until like January. Christmas is every day. Yeah. Then. Every day is Christmas to me. Isn't that a song? Every, I don't know. Um, anyway, I thought we could talk about reindeer. Reindeer, okay. Caribou. Caribou. From if any, if any Polar Express fans out there. <laughs> there you go. Um, reindeer are cool. They are cool. They yeah. pulled Santa's sleigh. And that's a pun. You were supposed to laugh. Oh, because they're, it's cold. Where they're, You've where ruined this whole segment. It is, it is ruined. We might as well end it now. Um, but here's just some basic little caribou information. And, you know, there's like an argument about, is it reindeer or caribou? Um, and I tried to find a solid answer that I could give you, and there's not one. Um, so... I always thought it was like a localization kind of thing. It, it can be, and I, I feel like that's probably the answer. But there's some that say, you know, caribou are the wild ones and reindeer are domesticated, or caribou are U.S. and then reindeer are like Europe and, and other places. But for, for just the sake of, of consistency and sticking with kind of the Christmas theme, I'm just going to call them reindeer. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so I'm talking just about reindeer in general, whether it be in – the United States, Canada, Scandinavia, doesn't matter. So reindeer are found in very cold places. The Arctic tundra is their home, as well as boreal forests of northern Alaska, Europe, and Canada. Um, but there actually was a point where they were found as far south as northern Idaho. Idaho? Yeah, you know, back during the Ice Age when it was a bit colder and global warming wasn't that much of an issue. Um, there's actually some species of reindeer. Um, there's like woodland caribou and then um, your classic like Arctic reindeer and stuff like that. So there are a couple of species. But um, reindeer are actually much smaller than I thought they were because males are only between 350 to 400 pounds-ish. Um, there has been some that have been recorded at like 700 pounds, which is kind of what I thought would be the average considering the elk are 
like 800 to 900 on average for the males. But apparently reindeer are very small, which I guess makes sense considering they live in a place where there's not a lot of food. Right. Um, and then females are smaller at, you know, about 200-ish pounds. Um, but of course, because reindeer live in very cold places, they have to be adapted for the cold. And some of these adaptations are very weird. Um, so their hooves change. The hooves? The shape of their hooves changes for the seasons. Okay. So over time, their foot pads shrink and tighten. So they kind of make um, a sort of triangular shape. And if you can imagine... For like some traction on the ice? Yeah, like for traction and helping them slice through snow. Mm. It was like a little um, snowplow. Yeah, kind of like a little snowplow, exactly. And then in the spring, their hooves kind of expand and become more sponge-like. And this helps them move on soft ground. So can you just imagine if your feet... It became, was hard and then just became soft. Yeah. Every year. Every year. Every year. How weird is that? Imagine that feels weird. I imagine it would feel very weird, indeed. Um, and kind of another weird fact, their hair is hollow. Well, some of it is hollow anyway, which doesn't make any sense. Their hair is hollow. Their hair is hollow. What? How does that help them? Exactly. Um, well, so it's that's kind of a lie, but not really. So their outer layer is hollow, and then they have a very fuzzy soft inner layer of fur and so that outer layer what it does is it allows air to come into that those layers of fur and then it just traps them in there oh okay as yeah. an insulator yeah, kind of like insulator and then it gets trapped within all that soft hair and, and can't escape warm. um this also gives them their white color um and because their hair is hollow that gives them some buoyancy when they're swimming Huh, they float. Yeah, they kind of float a little bit, which is great because they swim a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> so it's great to have a little bit of help with that. Speaking of hair, they have a lot of fur on their nose. They are the only deer species with fur on their nose. It's very fuzzy and soft all of the time. And they also have this layer of nasal mucus on their nose, and it's there consistently. And this is heated by warm blood vessels just under the skin. And so sort of the idea with this is that as they're breathing air in, this warms up the air before it goes into their lungs. Oh, so they breathe in the warm air. I mean, have you, like, you know when you're walking outside like we did earlier when we went to get our tea and we were huffing and puffing because it's so cold outside and like your throat hurts? Can you imagine living in that every day? I mean, no thank or it's you. it's much colder, much colder. Much colder, much, much colder. So this actually helps them um, with all of that. And this is actually something that elk do as well, but they have clicky knees. Clicky knees. Clicky knees. So their joints um, make clicking noises. And this is really- Mine too, they're not special. Well, it is still kind of special. Okay. Do you have clicky knees? Sometimes. Well, you should probably get that checked out. I don't think, I don't think that's <laughs> probably something to brag about. Um, anyway, even though reindeer have a very wide array of vocalizations, like all deer are very vocal creatures, this is thought to help them in blizzards. Oh, so they can still hear each so other. So they can still hear each other. Yeah. Elk use it for kind of a similar purpose when they're moving through really thick brush and stuff to kind of tell each other like, hey, I'm just an elk. Don't, don't, panic. it's me. Um, so it's another just communication tool. Clicky knees. Clicky knees. Yeah. Interesting. Which must sound really strange. I've listened since I learned that elk do that. I've listened for it when I'm out and I haven't heard it. So I don't know if it's like 
so soft that only we like the um the other animals can hear it or what but hmm. yeah little little fun fact i'm gonna have to look that up good what, what clicking knees sound like an elephant. I want to hear what the clicking knees sound like. <laughs> that would be, if we can find it, we'll insert it into the podcast for, for the listening pleasure of everyone, everyone here. Because <laughs> I'm sure everyone would like to hear that. Um, have you ever looked into a reindeer's eyes? Can't say I have. Yeah, that's not surprising. Um, well, reindeer are thought to be the only mammals that we know of that are able to see UV light. Huh. UV light. UV light. So humans can see light at about 400 nanometers, roughly. Reindeer can see up to 320 nanometers, um, which is the spectrum that we're only able to see with black light. Yeah. Super insane. Um, why in the world are they able to do this? I was getting ready to ask. It's a great question. Um, because they need to be able to spot food and predators in the harsh tundra sunlight. Because if you can imagine... Must be snowblind. Snow. Yeah. It's like looking at a piece of paper in the sun. You just can't see it. It's kind of the same idea here. Um, their eyes also change color during different seasons, thanks to their tapetum, which is that layer behind the iris. Um, the, where the color is? So the iris, the iris is the color. Yeah. So there's like a layer right behind the iris. Yeah. Yeah. And so in winter, they're blue. And then in summer, they're actually a gold color. Gold. And this is kind of for the similar purpose of that UV light. Because in the summer, really that ability is much because there's not as much snow. They can see just fine. Um, but in the summer, their eyes are gold, which is, I imagine is very beautiful. You can't really see this she looked them really close in the <laughs> eye. Really close. I don't suggest anyone gets that close to a reindeer's eye. I don't think that's going to work out very well for you. Um, anyway. Have you ever drank in reindeer milk before, Jacob? Reindeer milk? The answer is going to be no, but... I don't know. No. No, no I can't it's say It's not that. very widely available in stores. <laughs> <laughs> you can't pick that up at a local grocery store? Yeah, No. Um, but it is some of the richest and most nutritious milk produced by any mammal, period. It contains 22% butter fat and 10% protein. For comparison, a cow is only about 3 to 4% butter fat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Listen, those baby reindeer need a boost, okay? I, I reckon. Um, and actually, their milk is so nutritious that there are some groups of um, people in Nordic countries mainly that have used their milk to make sweet cheeses for centuries. Um, specifically, the Sami people of Scandinavia rely on reindeers for their main cheeses. It's apparently like really creamy and kind of mild in flavor. Um, but the Sami people of Scandinavia, reindeer are one of their main resources. So they use them for milk and, and you know tools and everything. Um, however, reindeer only produce like a liter of milk a day <laughs> compared to cows, which are like seven gallons. <laughs> That's not a lot. That's not a lot. So reindeer milk is not really found anywhere. And it's also one of those sort of situations where it's kind of like an ancient art of making reindeer cheese and butter and everything. So there's only a few of the Sami people. Kind of passed down. Yeah. So you kind of have to know somebody to be able to get reindeer milk. Trust me, I looked <laughs> forever to find reindeer milk or cheese for us to try live on air. You didn't try Publix? Not even, not even Publix. And if I can't find it at Publix, there's no hope. I mean, that's just going to be a no. And so 
I also I looked up like how like what kind of cheese they make and they make this sort of bread cheese out of it and I was like well maybe we can get some bread cheese made from a cow you know just to have that idea I could not find that at Publix either you find bread cheese no I couldn't and then I looked it up on Amazon and it would be like fifty dollars to get it shipped here to the Smokies and I was like. I love cheese, but not not that much. Um, so if anyone out there has ever tried reindeer cheese, please let me know how it is because I'm I'm quite curious. I, yeah, so am I. Quite curious, but I'm sure you've heard about the reindeer migration, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, listen, reindeer migrations, according to a report published in Scientific Reports, the North American reindeer specifically have the longest migration of any terrestrial land mammal. At nearly 3,000 miles a year. 3,000 miles 3, a year. Miles. So that's about 23 miles every day. Every single day. Yeah. Walking constantly. Yeah. No time to rest. They have to swim across vast stretches of water. Hence the buoyancy. Yeah. Yeah. Hence the buoyancy of their fur. But imagine just walking in the tundra and then having to go into the water and you're just cold and hungry and your child is there with you. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. But reindeer migrations are kind of interesting because in a recent study, this was done in 2022, I think it was published in like January or something of that year. Um, there were researchers that found that the information for migrations is found in the animal's genes. This is not necessarily new information. We, we kind of know that some migration things are in the genes already, but with reindeer, it's not found in every individual which is a little weird. So they studied reindeer in Alaska and Canada, and they found that they can be genetically separated into two subgroups, a northern and a southern population. The northern subgroup have more mutations associated with, quote, pronounced migratory behavior when compared to the southern subgroup. So the northern subgroup likes to migrate more. Basically, is that what, basically what they mean? Or at least they have more mutations that are associated with migrations. Yeah. And so they also, they, you know, they use tracking collars to kind of monitor that as well and saw that indeed the northern groups seem to move a lot more than the southern groups. Um, and specifically the, the mutations that they found or the migration genes as they called them are related to brain activity, cognition, and fat deposition in the body. Hmm. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense. Because if you're migrating, you're using a lot of energy. So right. kind of move that fat around is going to be very important for you. And the researchers even wrote, quote, we determine that propensity to migrate depends upon the proportion of ancestry in individual caribou and thus the evolutionary history of its migratory and, sedent and sedentary subspecies, which is really a fancy way for saying really migration is based on ancestry of caribou. Migration is based on ancestry. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That is. That is very interesting. I told you, reindeer are cool. <laughs> thank, thank you for laughing that time. Um, that was your cue. <laughs> thank you for picking up on that. Well. I was say, I've learned so much today. We, we learned a lot, actually. We learned a lot today. And I had a lot of fun. Um, so, all of you lovely listeners, I hope you guys also learned a little something and had some fun listening to us ramble about cool animals. Um, if you are interested in this podcast, please follow us on all the social media apps. We are on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, and we are always open to suggestions as well. If there's things you guys want to hear from us, hear us rant or ramble or argue about. 
or argue about. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's that's how we roll, of course. So with that, thank you very, very much for listening to the Metazoa podcast, and we hope to see you here next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.